The Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, that's where we'll be studying today as we continue in our series that we have entitled God's Invitation. Specifically, what does it mean for us to live in the light of God's invitations to us? Many of us have this fundamental operating code in life that says, yeah, God may tolerate us, God may put up with us, but God doesn't really want to be with us. And that is not what God's Word teaches us. And so from God's words, literally His words to us, we want you to hear throughout this series His invitations to you and to me. Now, you can follow along in your own copy of God's Word as I read, or you can use the YouVersion Bible app, and you can find all of today's uh, scriptures, the notes for today's message by simply hitting the events function at the bottom right-hand corner, then uh, more, and then uh, you can uh, geolocate right onto our service and have all of the message notes and text there. Or, of course, you can follow along using paper notes as well. So we're going to read just this brief passage, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal Word. May He add His blessing to its reading and its proclamation. As we consider the idea that God isn't reluctant for us to come into His presence, but is eager. And we, we think about what does it mean to be invited into the presence of the living God. Today, in just those few verses where we, we get a snapshot of a moment, in fact, we're going to see in just a minute, a very dramatic moment in the life of Jesus, we want to focus on three key themes. We're going to talk about how Thirst is actually a grace of God, a, a blessing, an undeserved blessing of God. You may never have thought of the fact that your thirst is a blessing from God, but we want to talk about why it is. And then we're going to talk about the assurance of satisfaction that Jesus gives us in this passage. And then we'll be talking also about the joy-filled power of living in the overflow of God's grace and in the overflow of His Spirit. So those will be our three themes, the grace of thirst, the assurance of satisfaction, and the joy-filled power of overflow. All right? So uh, when we think about the grace of thirst, we need a little bit of context here. Okay, so let's go to that very first verse there. It, we started with this verse that says, "...on the last day of the feast..." Jesus stands up and cries out, if anyone is thirsty. So you need some context here, right? 
when and where and what is happening for this. Well, if you read all of John 7, which we didn't, you could go all the way back to the beginning of John 7, you could learn that the feast that is happening is the Feast of Booths. Okay? It's the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. And what would happen during the fall, once the harvest had come in, uh, just like, like we have Thanksgiving time, the Jewish people would gather under the command of God for a great feast. But this was a unique feast. It was like a Boy Scout jamboree, because everybody would come to town and they would camp. In fact, if you were within 20 miles of the city of Jerusalem, the law demanded that you travel to Jerusalem and you camped outside. Even if you had a home, you would go up on top of your flat roof and you would pitch a tent. And the law had very specific regulations for the tent. You had to be able to see the stars. And your tent should be covered in some kind of leaves uh, because many of the, 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 much of the symbolism was about the people of Israel going through the desert and living for a time in tents and building temporary shelters out of the trees that they could find in the wilderness. So they had to cover their tents with some leaves or build actual shelters out of branches, but most of them probably didn't build. And you had to see a certain amount of daylight through them. The walls couldn't be too thick. You couldn't be too comfortable, okay? Like I said, you had to see a certain number of stars. And, and it was during this time of Thanksgiving feast when everybody's camping out and thousands upon thousands of people have descended on Jerusalem. This was considered the high point of the Jewish year. For seven days, everybody's off work and they're having a great big party, okay? Everybody's feasting, they're sharing food, they've brought in their tithes and their offerings from the fields so they're bringing in their wine, they're bringing in their grain, they're bringing in all of these things, and they're bringing them to Jerusalem during this great big party. And it's in the context of that feast that Jesus says, is anybody thirsty? So maybe you and I need to change our picture of what's happening here. Have you ever been to a baseball game with thousands of people around you? And, you know, you get the vendors with their, like, their concession things right in front of you, you know, and they're, like, calling out sodas, hot dogs, right? Right, this is the moment, right? Jesus is doing this. But let me give you a little bit more context. It's specifically during what's called the water rite that Jesus makes this radical announcement. So one of the things the law hadn't commanded, but that the Jewish people had added as a celebration to the festival of booths, or the Feast of Booths, was that they had something called the water rite. In the time of the morning offering, everybody would show up at the temple. Now, you wouldn't show up empty-handed, specifically if you were a man. You wouldn't show up empty-handed because you would be in the inmost court of the temple. And in your left hand, you would have a piece of citrus fruit, okay? So it could be a lemon, a lime, an orange, a tangerine, some kind of citrus fruit. It would be in your left hand. And in your right hand would be a, 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 a little like fan made up of three different types of trees, uh, branches from three different types of trees, uh, 
the willow, the palm, and the myrtle. And those were the kinds of branches that the children of Israel had typically made their boots out of. So you, you would take a little clipping of that, and you'd make like a little fan that you would hold in your hand of these three branches in your right hand, okay? So there you are. You show up at the temple. Everybody's got a piece of fruit in their left hand and a branch in their right hand, right? And then the priest, he shows up in the middle of the temple courtyard, and he's got a golden pitcher, a flagon, Uh, of gold. And together, you follow him. So you march down the temple mount all the way down to the pool of Siloam, the Watergate area of the city. And there at the pool, he would dip the flagon with the and, and get water inside there. We believe he would likely recite at that point Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which we'll see here in just a minute, okay? So keep that in mind. I'll mention that again. Then he would take that golden flagon, and he would march up the hill all the way back to the temple courtyard. And the people would be singing what's called the Hallel, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So people are singing, and they're waving their fruit and their branches, right? And they're doing this, and you go back up to the temple, and there's a great big altar in the middle of the temple courtyard, and the priest would ascend these stairs after circling the altar once. He would ascend these stairs, and then he would pour out the water while reciting Scripture, and it was this big high point. Everybody wants to see the water being poured out. It's like this giant moment, okay? We'll explain why in just a minute. On the last day of the feast, the priest wouldn't just circle the altar one time, but seven times. And as he ascended up, he would be joined by another priest who would be carrying a pitcher of wine, and they would pour out the water and the wine as drink offerings to God. Now, we don't exactly know when Jesus stood up and cried out he was thirsty. It it, it cried out if anyone was thirsty. We think it could be at the exact moment when everybody is straining to see the priest pour out the water and the wine, or because of the way the text is, language is there, it could be on the next day whenever you started to pack up your tents, but you were having a day of repentance, a day of solemn assembly, which was commanded in the law. So since we don't know, it could be either of those two moments. What we do know is this, that Jesus chose a dramatic moment to ask, are you thirsty? Can you imagine if it was in the moment when the priest is getting ready to pour out the water and Jesus stands up and says, anybody thirsty? (laughs) Or the next day when everybody's doing their solemn assembly and all week long they've been watching this pouring out of the water And then the last day they watch out the pouring of the water and the wine. And Jesus stands up and says, is anybody thirsty? We know he chooses a dramatic moment to say, who's who's thirsty here? Okay? So why? Well, let's take a look at that, all right? So why were the Jews doing this? And, And this will help us understand why Jesus is choosing this moment and what he's saying. So we know that the Jewish people were doing this because they were remembering a time in which they were physically thirsty. 
Specifically, they were remembering that as they traveled across the desert for 40 years, they were often thirsty. And so you can look up the scripture passages. We have them in the notes of two major accounts when the people ran out of water in the desert in Exodus 17. And there are numbers. You can read the two different times that the people thought they were going to perish from a lack of water in the desert. Um, Exodus 17 says the people thirsted there for the water. The people grumble. Of course, it's always Moses' fault. It's always the religious leader's fault whenever God hasn't come through for you, right? Um, And so... Uh, And they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst, right? So what's happening in the water rite is that the people were remembering something about them being creatures. Now, you and I can go a long time without food. Some of us a little bit longer than others. I suspect I could go farther than most of you because we have fat stores, right? But no human being can go more than 72 hours without water. Their organs will shut down. They'll begin to die. You'll have organ failure very quickly because we are built by our Creator God to be thirsty creatures. And that was true before the fall. There's something about the way God created us that He wanted us to be forever dependent on His provision of water. Isn't that interesting? So the people are remembering that they are creatures and that they've been physically thirsty. But they're also remembering that when they were in the desert, that God provided water, right? So they're remembering that in the ancient past, God provided water, but they're also remembering that God provided water that year. This is a Thanksgiving festival, a festival of harvest, so the people are bringing the fruit of the land, right? So they're remembering, hey, God gave us rain, and we've got these crops to show for it. So they're remembering God's provision, that God is a God of provision. So Isaiah is one of the places you can find so many allusions to this important reality the people of Israel needed to remember. That the children of Israel did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He made water flow uh, for them from the rock. And he split the rock and water gushed out. You might remember that in two critical moments when water ran out, God would tell Moses one time to strike the rock and another time to speak to the rock. Moses chose to strike the rock twice rather than just once. So careful what you do when God tells you to do something, right? Uh, But what happens is that in both cases, God pours forth from a dry rock water. Poof! A giant fountain of water appears in the desert. So the children of Israel are remembering not only that they were created to be dependent on God, but that God is a God of provision. That He provides that which they need, even in times when it seems like there is no provision. So they're remembering that. And they're remembering also that we're not just thirsty for water, right? that actually water stands in 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 Scripture as a picture of the longing of our souls. So when we're thirsty for water, it's a reminder 
from God that we have a greater thirst in our life. We all have unfulfilled desires, plans, dreams, hopes. We all have things that we are longing for in our lives, right? We can call those things a spiritual thirst. Well, physical thirst is the way Adam and Eve were created before there was sin. We weren't created for spiritual thirst. We were never actually supposed to be absent from God fulfilling all of our longings constantly. How did we get there? Sin, unbelief, led us there. So the people are remembering that the spiritual longings of their life are a result of their sin and unbelief. Jeremiah said something very interesting on behalf of God to the children of Israel. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Okay, so if you guys were going to list the top two sins that God's about to list, you know, if somebody came to you and said, what do you think the two worst sins are? How many of you would say what God said through Jeremiah? There's two things I have against you. Here are your two grand charges. My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says the fundamental nature of every sin always comes in two realities. Forsaking God as the source of all that is good and life-giving and that is refreshed and constantly beautiful and amazing. So we forsake God and we try to find that which we are now longing for out of our forsaking in something we've created. And that's at the base or the root of all sins. Every time you and I sin, we can find that we have forsaken God and we have decided to create some alternate God. As Tim Keller likes to say, under every sin, behavioral sin that we've got, there is some form of idolatry and under every idol is an unbelief in the good news of God, right? So the children of Israel are remembering that there's not just a physical thirst, there's a spiritual thirst. But they're also remembering this reality, that in the midst of a spiritually broken and empty world, that God Himself is inviting people to come to Him, not just for physical provision of water, but God is inviting people to come to Him to have their spiritual needs met. God is inviting the spiritually thirsty to come to Him. So you find passages like this from Isaiah chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. In the midst of a spiritually thirsty world, God is saying, come to me. Come to me. And the children of Israel were reminding themselves of that in this water ritual, that God was inviting them to come to Him. And so they're remembering the promises of God 
that He's going to satisfy our thirst. And so you could just quickly take a look at some of those in Scripture. You can remember that God has promised that both physical thirst and spiritual thirst will come to an end. You can find that throughout Scripture. Isaiah 58, 11 says this, The Lord will guide you continually. There will come a day when God will constantly guide us. He will satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall become like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters don't fail. Not only will you not be thirsty, you'll be pouring out water into the world. Isn't that amazing? God's giving you these amazing promises. He's saying that there will be a fountain there, but it's not just a fountain that satisfies your needs, but it fixes the thing that you have done, which is forsaking God and creating your own, th- your own uh, trying to create your own solutions, your own cisterns that can hold no water, right? We try to create reservoirs of, of, of satisfaction and peace. We fill up our lives with things like sex and money and power and career significance and just uh, all of the, the pleasures that we can find in entertainment, we find that all of those things leak. Now, I had an experience this week. Uh, I woke up early one morning, went to my coffee pot, and my counter is covered with water. And I thought my children have spilled water all over the counter because, you know, dads have to have somebody to blame. So, I'm a little bit irritated at 5 a.m. when I find water all over my counter because I knew that I had wiped that counter down before I went to sleep the night before. So I assure myself and blame my children, which is not righteous. But the next evening, I load up the coffee maker, get it ready for the morning, set the timer and everything else, and then I'm sitting there with my kids talking and we're doing different things, and Rachel gets up and she walks over to the counter And there's water everywhere. Now, what was happening? My coffee maker was leaking. Water was going everywhere out of the bottom of my coffee maker. It wasn't my kids. It was my broken coffee maker. I was wrong, right? Have you ever gone looking for something, expecting it to be there and found that It wasn't there because everything's leaked out. And what if you go looking to some place to try and find forgiveness and freedom and cleansing only to find that it always leaks out? You and I need a perpetual fountain of cleansing and forgiveness, don't we? And that's being reflected on here. There's a promise in Zechariah, which is, a, especially the later chapters, an extended reflection on the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would read Zechariah throughout the Feast of Tabernacles. And you find that, that Zechariah prophesies, so we, we suspect this water rite goes back to at least Zechariah's time. Um, he says, on the day when God shows up to do something, there'll be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You won't just be coming down to the spring of Siloam. There'll be a fountain that opens up. But guess what this fountain's going to do? It's going to cleanse you from your sin. Wow. It's going to cleanse you from all the things that you can't be cleansed by 
by the things of this world, not by religion or anything else. So there's this amazing promise the children of Israel are reflecting on. And they're, prom- they're reflecting on this promise, that God has promised that He's not done pouring out His gracious Spirit on the world, right? Um, God says this in uh, Isaiah 44, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit out upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So in the water, right, the people weren't just celebrating physical water. They weren't just celebrating water as a metaphor of God's grace and forgiveness and the fountain of His goodness. They're also recognizing that in Scripture, water has a metaphorical tie to the Spirit of God. And so they're saying, just like God poured forth water upon us, we need Him to pour forth His Spirit upon us. Now, if God is pouring out, let me, let me just think about this. If God gives you the satisfaction of your physical thirst, satisfaction of your spiritual thirst, washes you clean of all the things you can't be cleansed by in all of your spiritual brokenness on your own, and has promised that He's going to pour forth Himself into this world. What what should be your reaction? Wouldn't you be waving that fruit and waving that, that, that branch, right? You should be filled with joy. That's an amazing reality. And so the children of Israel are are recognizing that a lasting, greater joy is coming upon them. That they are, in fact, going to find that there is a great and profound joy and fulfillment that God has for them. So that's why we think, uh, based on some textual evidence, that one of the passages the priest would recite when he's dipping the flagon at the pool of Siloam is Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Okay. So do you see that thirst is actually a gift of God to you? To remind you that God alone can satisfy you. Cleanse you. And bring you joy. All that is what is being celebrated. So when Jesus stands up at that high point of the feast, which is kind of my leaning, is that he probably did it right at the moment when the water is getting poured out, just because I think it's a big dramatic moment and it makes the most sense with the text. May have been the next day during the solemn assembly when people were thirsty and there's no more water ritual. Okay, but either way, Jesus is doing this to give us an assurance of satisfaction and to point to some greater reality. So let's look at John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, at this moment, Jesus stands up and yells out, Who's thirsty? If anyone's thirsty, here's water over here, the priest is up there. I'm sure somebody's selling water in the outer court, water bottles, you know. Jesus stands up and says something ridiculous. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me. Can you imagine the moment of thousands of people 
looking at a guy with no water and saying, what? Come to me and drink. Do you hear the heart of God in the words of Jesus? One of the reasons we're doing this series, as I shared earlier, is because I believe that Satan and the world and your flesh want to conspire against you and lie to you and tell you that God doesn't want you. You may want others, maybe people who are better than you, smarter than you, more ethical than you. And none of that is true. God wants you to come to Him. He wants you to come to Him if you're thirsty. And who isn't thirsty? In fact, guess what? If you show up with a, your own gallon jug of water and go, no thanks, I got this, Jesus. <laughs> Maybe you're the person that's not being invited. In fact, that's what Scripture's saying. When the poor and needy seek water, there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. If you and I show up with our hands full of our own water jugs, we're maybe not the folks that are being invited. It's the thirsty that are promised that God will not forsake them. See, God wants you and me to understand something. Only He can be our satisfaction. He's the only one who can satisfy that spiritual thirst. So if you go to Psalm 37, uh, sorry, 36, verses 7 through 9, you see there this passage. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you, you God, give them drink from the river of your delights. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, I think we have the wrong picture of God. We think of God as a fuddy-duddy who isn't interested in giving us good things. Did you just understand that God is going to give you drink from the river of delights? Now, I don't know what that river tastes like, but it's not just boring. It's a river of delight, for with God is the fountain of life. Wouldn't that be amazing if we were to come to Him and find our satisfaction there? I want to ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus is everything your soul is actually longing for? See, Jesus stands up and makes this ridiculous statement. Now, the question is, what are people going to do with that? You? This person of no stately form and majesty, you, an ordinary carpenter from Galilee. In fact, by the way, they've been discussing him all week long. Yeah, he's pretty smart. He never got trained as a rabbi, seems to know God's word. But really, he might have a demon in him, or he, he might need to be locked up. The authorities want to put him in. And, and by the way, they keep bringing up over and over and again, he's from West Virginia. Or in their version, Galilee. He's a hillbilly. That's what they're saying. So if a hillbilly stands up at the highest point of the biggest religious service of the year at this grand moment when everybody's waiting and says, Hey, y'all, come over here if you're thirsty. And he has no water, you might 
wonder if the guy's not right in the head. Right? So let me ask you again. Do you believe he's everything you've ever been thirsting for? You know, a few chapters before this, John describes an encounter Jesus had with a woman. A woman who came to a well in the middle of the day. She came looking for water. He asked her for a drink. She says, why are you, a Jewish man talking to me, a Samaritan woman, and why do you want me to be the one to give you a drink? And Jesus says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes right into it. If you knew who I am and what God is doing in this world, you would have fallen before me and begged for life-giving water. Jesus is going to make it clear, everything else will leave us thirsty. To her, he says this, everyone who drinks of this water from Jacob's well will be thirsty again. Everything else you have and I have ever tried is always going to require us to drink again. Jesus is going to say to her that He alone can truly satisfy us completely. So He goes on to say, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He's going to say that He alone can satisfy us forever. So He goes on to say, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not only will I satisfy you, I'm going to give you a certain kind of water that will then become an overflowing reality in your life. It will pour forth into the rest of the world. So when the hillbilly from Nazareth says, are you thirsty? Come over here. Would you have gone over there? Can I ask you maybe a more direct question. What are you thirsting for today? Is it recognition, significance, relationship, sexual fulfillment, freedom from addiction? Is it a better job, a better house, a better spouse? What is it that you think will actually satisfy your soul? Jesus says, you want to know who's happy in this world? Are the people who thirst for the right things. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, the word blessed there means happy. Happy are those who are thirsty for the right things. So, go back to that conversation Jesus was having with the woman at the well just like her, many of us want our surface thirst satisfied. We're willing to stop short of a fountain of living water. We'll take a little cup of ordinary life. A slightly bigger bank account, a pay raise, a better interaction with our spouse, our children to change just enough, a longer vacation. 
That's what we think. That's what the woman wanted. She wanted her immediate physical thirst satisfied, right? I mean, that's, that's what we want, and that's what she wanted. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The woman says, Hey, uh, if you've got some magic water, I, I would like that so that I don't have to come here in the middle of the day when it's all hot, right? But you know what Jesus does when we come to him with our broken, ordinary thirst? He exposes what the root thirsts actually are. And that's painful. In fact, I'm going to tell you that I think many of us don't come to Jesus because we know He's going to do this. We don't come to Him to find satisfaction because we know He's going to go that next level down and deal with what is making us thirsty. So watch what He does with the woman. Jesus responds to this when she says, give me the water, is to say, okay, go call your husband. Ha! The woman says, uh, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, that's right. Uh, the guy you're shacking up with, he's not your husband, and you've had five. What's he doing? Is he being cruel? Is he being petty? Is he pointing her out and saying, you're really immoral? He's saying your whole life has obviously been a thirst. You've been going from man to man to man and hoping that guy will fix what is broken deep inside you. See, Jesus is gracious enough to expose what our thirsts are actually about. Now, we tried to flip the conversation very often into religion at that point. Ah, let's get religious. We need, a, you know some theology here. Maybe we need to debate ethics. Maybe we need to do this. Well, this is exactly what the woman does. She tries to switch into religion. See, we will use religion as a substitute for a relationship with the living God. We will substitute what God has on offer with some form of religiosity and say, that can fix me. I would rather go to church than actually have to show up and meet God. I would rather read my Bible in a quiet time and then promptly forget it than to have to have an encounter with the living God. So that's what she does. She wants to talk religion all of a sudden. She doesn't want to address the thirst. So she has this long extended discussion with him about whether, she, whether or not she should be worshiping properly there in Samaria or in Jerusalem and who knows and everything else. And Jesus says this, listen here, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Remember, the spirit is pictured how? With what? Water. This flowing reality of God, this invasive thing that shatters the hardness of our hearts. He says, listen, you want to understand something? You've got to recognize that the true worshipers aren't worried about form. They're worried about a central relationship with God, what is spiritual and what is true. And he says the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then He will go on to her and to you and to me if we will come to Him when He cries out to us, and He will reveal that He is the true satisfaction. He's all that we have actually been longing for. And watch this encounter, how it ends up with the Samaritan woman. 
The woman, exhausted with her attempts to try and get this into a religious debate and point out her own physical needs, and she's trying to ignore her whole issue with men, she says, okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. She's trying to end the discussion. She says, I know that when Taheb shows up, when the Samaritan version of the Messiah shows up, when God shows up in the flesh, or when there's some fulfillment of the promises, then I'll understand it all. Isn't that nice? A lot of us are doing that probably right now. We're saying, well, someday I'll figure that all out. Watch what Jesus says. He says, don't you get it? I'm He. And one of the most direct claims of Jesus is an encounter between a Samaritan woman and the living God. He says, I'm everything your heart has ever longed for. It shatters the woman. It shatters the village. The question is, will it shatter us? Do you believe that Jesus has done all that is needed to satisfy you? Can I give you just one reason that you can believe that? Did Jesus ever thirst? Oh, there was the time he was in the desert without water and food for 40 days. But you say, well, he's the son of God. He's sustained there by the angels. But was there another moment when he was thirsty? How do you know Jesus can satisfy you? Because he knows what the depths of human thirst are. With his lungs filling with fluid, with every breath aching, hanging from a tree, for hour upon hour in the hot Judean sun, he refuses to drink until a final moment. Physicians who've studied crucifixion will tell you that the strength that it has taken him to cry this out is absolutely agonizing. He has to lift his body up knowing it's tearing his feet from where they're being positioned there. He has to thrust his body up and try to get enough air in his lungs so that he can cry out, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And in that moment, all of the thirst of the human race is taken on by the Son of God. They satisfy that thirst? No. You know what they do? They give him poison. Wine that's been mixed with a bitter herb, myrrh. The word sour is too mild there. This is Campari on steroids, drink straight and then he says it's done I've taken on all of the thirst that the human race has ever had I've drank the cup of God's wrath becoming God's substitute 
so that we don't ever have to thirst again. At the cross, the satisfaction of Jesus is found in the moment when he says, it's done. So can I just tell you, you can't buy, earn, or deserve the satisfaction of God. You have to take it as a gift. Maybe you know that, but you've not been living that. You know the truth of the cross. It got you to what you thought was your point of salvation, but now you've been trying to find other satisfactions in this world. Maybe you forgot that all you could do is just take it as a gift. You know another time Jesus says it's done? The book of Revelation. Chapter 21. John in his vision of heaven encounters Jesus at the climax of human history. And Jesus says it is done. I am the Alpha I am the Omega. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. And then notice what he says. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So when the hillbilly from Nazareth cries out, who's thirsty? Will you come? Will you come and fall before him and just receive him? Can I tell you that there's more good news here? When Jesus does this, he wants us to understand not just simply that there's a grace in God in thirst or that there's an assurance of satisfaction, that he doesn't want his life-giving power to stop with us. He's not just going to fill you up to three quarters. I got really frustrated when I was looking for coffee makers this week because I found out that U.S. coffee maker manufacturers are lying to you and that 14 cups is really only 70 ounces, which is really just like eight and a half cups. Right? I'm like this many years old and just figuring this out. And a lot of us, I think that's how we approach God's grace. We think He's measuring out light. Giving us just partial measurements of His grace. Oh no. He's giving us enough grace to overflow. To overflow our lives. And and that's what He wants to have happen. Jesus goes on to say in verse 38, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I'm going to pour into your life so much grace, so much love, so much goodness, so much of of the essence and power of God. I'm going to pour that into your life in such a way that what flows out of your life becomes a river that gives life to the world. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that the Spirit of God that is coming to your life when you receive the gift of God's grace not only indwells you but overflows your life 
as you trust Jesus to be the satisfaction of your life, as you and I trust Jesus more and more to satisfy us, what happens is that God pours himself into us in such a way that we now overflow into the world. In fact, that is what is supposed to happen. Jesus goes on, uh, or John goes on to comment on Jesus' statement there in verse 39. He says, now this he said about the Spirit. John wants us to understand. Jesus is talking about the Spirit of God will be poured forth into the lives of the people who will trust in Him, whom those who believed in Him were to what? Receive. There's that word. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's going to happen on the day of Pentecost, right? God's going to pour forth Himself in such a way that He will indwell us and overflow. So here's a couple of things I want you to take away. The Spirit of God flows through the people of God to bring healing, satisfaction, and life to the world. Many scholars have pointed out that there are two bodies of water in Israel. One is life-giving, the Galilee, Jesus' home country. The other is the Dead Sea, a perpetually terrible place. The Dead Sea is much bigger. It looks pretty. I can tell you from having jumped into it that it's agonizing because it's full of salt. But the Galilee, the Galilee has sustained life in the Levant for 10,000 years or so. Why? What's the difference? The Galilee has an outlet to a little river called the Jordan. The Dead Sea has no outlet. Brothers and sisters... Our lives are intended to be the Galilee. We're to overflow with the grace and the goodness that God has given us and pour life into this world. That picture is found in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and Zechariah, and it's also found in the New Testament when John gets a glimpse of the church. The church as it's going to be in the physical manifestation, and as it is being unveiled in this world. And he sees the temple of God, the church of God, come down to earth. And here's what John sees. The angel shows him a river flowing out from the throne of God. And, and the river is bright as crystal, and, and it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the city. It flows in this, and on either side of the river are the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Why 12? One for each month of the year, one for each of the apostles possibly. But there's 12 kinds of life-giving reality, whatever that is, okay, that's being pictured here. Yielding its fruit in each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The Holy Spirit of God not only wants to satisfy you, He wants to overflow through your life and through your witness into this world to bring healing into a broken, dissatisfied, empty, thirsty world. So, what does that mean for you and me? It means you're getting invited today. 
to come to the fountain of the living water. The Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you. To come to Him. The Holy Spirit of God is speaking not only to you, but through you. To invite the world to come. So do you have friends, neighbors, co-workers, people that you love deeply, family members, children, spouses, that need to come to Jesus? I love this verse here. A few years back, God impressed it on my heart. I heard a sermon clip of Dr. Adrian Rogers, the great Southern Baptist preacher, using this particular passage as he often did at the end of his message. He says, the Spirit and the bride, that's the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The church extends the invitation of the Holy Spirit to the world. Today, the hillbilly is asking you if you're coming to him for satisfaction, cleansing, and for the overflow. Why don't we pray and ask him to do this work in us? Father God, whatever is empty, dry, thirsty in our lives, would you overflow us with your grace for your glory? Would you pour forth your living water into each of our hearts and minds, wherever we've been trying to create or carve out cisterns of self-satisfaction or man-made religion. God, strip those away from us and fill us, I pray, through your Spirit and by your Spirit with so much of your grace and goodness that today and tomorrow and throughout this week and the days ahead, our lives would be an overflow. We'd be rivers of living water into this world into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our communities. Thank you for inviting us to come to you. Satisfy our souls. And so overflow us with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That the world stay who is constantly thirsty would find that if they come to you, there's overwhelming satisfaction. Do this by your grace, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.